0: Welcome to the weekly service message from the Crossbridge Church. Look for us on the web at www.crossbridgeny.org. Join us now as Pastor Nate Young delivers this week's message. Go ahead and open your Bibles up to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2 and Ephesians chapter 3 today. This is the final sermon in a series that we would entitled, What is the Church? This particular series is going to end with a, a biblical discussion on what we refer to as covenant members, those who make up and have covenanted together in the local church. Uh, there's a few things that we're going to have to address about covenants before we can get to covenant members, but there's something that, that I want you to consider uh, this particular story when you think about the church. When you think about the local church in particular because we've been discussing the universal church that that makes up all believers across the world and then the local church that consists of believers who have covenanted together in relationship with each other covenant members and, and this discussion that we're going to have today is about the local church the the universal church that has gathered together as individuals that make up the local church And when we think about the local church, I want you to, to consider the work of the local church in light of this particular story. Here's the story. The story is about four people. The four people are named everybody, somebody, anybody, and nobody. There was an important job to be done, and everybody was sure that somebody would do it. Anybody could have done it, but nobody did it. Somebody got angry about that because it was everybody's job. Everybody thought anybody can do it, but nobody realized that everybody wouldn't do it. It ended up that everybody blamed somebody when nobody did did what anybody could have done. You see, this often describes, though, what happens in the local church. It It can become easy to think and act as if everyone else but us will do the work of the church, even though we have all been called to it. See, the topic of covenant membership gives clarity to the commitments that each of us have made to each other in the local body of Christ and helps remind us that we are each responsible to each other to do the work of the ministry. I'm going to mention several times today something that I'm going to refer to as uh, a, a covenant, a church covenant, if you 're not familiar with our church covenant, we actually have copies of that available uh, at the back when when you leave there 's a missions board with our missionaries there there 's a cho- a copy of the church covenant I, I want to encourage you to take a copy of that and and read it uh, to consider even in greater detail what i'm i 'm saying here but here 's the the main idea what, I'm, what of what i 'm hoping to convey to you today God has made us alive with Christ. Amen? Do you believe that today? That God has made us alive with Christ. And not only that, he has made us fellow heirs of his covenant. And now, as the church, he allows us to reveal his wisdom. We must consider how those truths work out in our lives as both the universal church when we are scattered and the local church when we are gathered. Remember, let's go back to the very first lesson that that we covered in this sermon series. The church is not a building. The church is believers. Any believer, anyone that is saved, anyone that knows Jesus Christ as Savior is part of the universal church. But the universal church also has a local expression, the gathered church. So at no point does any believer ever stop being the church. Just at some point, believers are scattered as the universal church and gathered to worship God together as the local church. It's with each one of these things in mind, I want to encourage you to stand with me for a reading from the Word of God, Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 4 and 5, and then we're going to move to Ephesians 6, Or, excuse me, Ephesians 3, verses 6 and 10. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5 say this. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Now, skip with me to chapter 3, verse 6. He says, this mystery, this mystery that's being disclosed, is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So, there's a a mystery that's revealed in us. Now, skip down to verse 10. So, that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Now, hopefully, we're going to put all this together to understand covenants and covenant membership, So you may be seated. One of the things that that we have said through this entire series that's so important for us to remember that, that the church, its ordinances, its offices, and its covenant membership exist for one purpose. And that purpose is to glorify God above all else. As we have seen in Ephesians chapter, four verses, or Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, the grace of God, by the mercy of God, makes dead people alive through his covenantal blessings. Now, to understand how this works, we have to go back to Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3 to understand what made us dead people. How did we end up dead that we needed to be made alive? So if you want to turn with me to Genesis chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 15 through 17. Genesis chapter 2. We see God in Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 15, speaking with Adam. The Lord God takes Adam, the man, and puts him in the garden of Eden. This is Genesis 2.15. He gives them specific purposes there. He takes them to the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God, in verse 16, commands the man, saying, you shall surely eat of every tree of the garden. So he puts him in the garden to keep it and to tend, it, and allows him to enjoy the fruit of his labor in the garden. But what does he say in verse 17? But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day you eat it, you shall surely die. You see, God gives man a paradise to live in and to carry out his will. There are only two laws that God gives to the man. Work the garden of Eden to keep it, and do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the prohibition of of the fruit comes with a severe penalty. And we know in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve both eat the fruit. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 and 14 describe what happens in this way. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, sin came into the world through Adam, Adam by being disobedient to God's law and eating the fruit, causes death to enter into the world, and death through sin. So the sin of Adam causes death to permeate all of humanity. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 5. And so death spread to all men because all sin. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not con- uh, counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. You see, as sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, we inherited their sin and, their, and physical death. The death that, that comes to us came through the sin of Adam and Eve. We are dead both physically. We all die. Everyone's familiar with this, right? Everyone dies. This, is this new truth for anybody today? You all know we die, right? But we live like we're not going to. We want to live and act like we're going to live forever, But the truth is, we're going to die. And at the point that we're born, we're born physically alive, but spiritually dead. Just as human nature was passed on from Adam and Eve to all people, so was a sin nature. The sin nature makes us dead spiritually see, in Adam breaking the law of God, sin and death is transmitted to all of us. But in Genesis chapter 3, we find that God gives them hope in light of their sin. Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 says this. and speaking to the serpent who was involved in encouraging Adam and Eve to, to eat the apple, he says this to the serpent, to Satan. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. And this is where the hope enters in. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This promise that there is one that will come through the lineage of Adam and Eve that will ultimately put to death this serpent, that will ultimately put to death sin and death. You see, the curse of this broken covenant between God and Adam is death and sin. But by the grace and mercy of God, he makes dead people alive through his covenantal blessings. This particular passage, if you go back to Ephesians chapter 2, it says that God is rich in mercy. So we're dead in our trespasses and sins, We're going to physically die, we're already spiritually dead, but then a merciful God, a God who overflows in mercy, enters into the picture. Mercy, in some sense, is an emotion aroused by someone in need, and the attempt to relieve the person and remove his trouble. What was our trouble again? We were dead spiritually, we're all going to die physically. But this passage tells us, Ephesians chapter 2, tells us that he made us alive together. Together with who? Together with Christ. You see, there is this relationship between Christ and the believer, that there is in some sense a participation in his death, burial, and resurrection. Remember, we talked about this even in baptism. The baptism is a picture of our participation in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, that we were buried in the likeness of his death, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but in our unity with Christ, we're raised to newness of life. Because God, through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, has made us alive together with him. And this passage ends with one of the greatest messages that the Scriptures has to declare to all people of all times. You have been saved by grace. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is both God and man who lived a perfect life, who died to pay the debt for our sin, to pay the debt that we could not pay, to bring us from the death that we were in, in both physical and spiritual death, into spiritual and physical life in him, then by that grace of God, you are saved. And since we've been united with Christ, his resurrection guarantees our resurrection. His life guarantees our life. And we are being made alive in Christ by the grace and mercy of God. But the passage we just read in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 6 says that there is more that has happened to us than just being brought from death into life. Remember what it says in verse 6 of chapter 3. That the Gentiles are now fellow heirs fellow heirs and members of the same body. So there's something that was in the past that was a mystery that has now become divine revelation to us in this age. And that divine revelation is that we as Gentiles were at one point in time outside of the covenant promises of God, that God had made promises specifically to the nation of Israel. And as Gentiles, as non-Jews, we were outside of that. But now inside of Jesus Christ, this passage says that we are the same body we belong to and are partakers in, which is a word that describes someone who owns the same house as someone else. We're the same body, the partakers of what this passage calls the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now to understand what this promise is, we have to go back to another covenant. We have to go back to what's referred to as the Abrahamic covenant. How do we know this? Paul tells us that the promise that was given to us in Galatians chapter 3, verse 29, makes us of the offspring of Abraham. Galatians chapter 3, verse 29 says, If you are Christ's, if Christ Is your Savior, if you are His disciple, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to His promise. Or heirs according to promise. Let's be reminded again what this promise is. Again, we have to go back to Genesis chapter 12, in particular verses 1 through 3. In that particular passage, God is calling Abraham to Himself. The Lord says to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. So it sounds like he's just going to bless Abraham and Abraham's physical descendants. He blesses Abraham at the end of verse 2 so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and, I, and him who dishonors you will I curse. But catch this at the end of verse 3. What does it say? And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There's a covenant that's made with Abraham that has blessings that go along with with it that now involve us as those outside of the original promises of God as non-Jews. But now because of Jesus Christ... We are in this same promise. We are heirs with Abraham of this covenant of promise. And we could look at any number of problems, just like Abraham does. Abraham hears this covenant from God, this blessing from God, and, and he recognizes that for him to overcome it, it's an impossibility. In Genesis 15:2, Abraham knows that his wife Sarah has not borne him a son. And so he can see no way by which this covenantal promise of God can go forward. There's a very human problem that he's confronted with. Abraham speaks to God and he says, Oh Lord God, what will you give me for I continue childless? How is this promise going to go forward? How will the families of the world be blessed through me if I have no children by which for this covenant to go forward? And listen to the Lord's response in Genesis 15, 5 through 6. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to them, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Brothers and sisters, you and I as the church are the fulfillment of the promise given in Genesis twelve three. Because the covenant moves forward from Adam to Abraham with the promise of not just physical blessing, but a spiritual blessing that comes from the seed of Adam and is extended to us through the covenant to Abraham, we are now grafted into the family of God. Those of us who were outside of the covenant of God had no way by which, there was no means by which we could get to God on our own. But Jesus Christ makes a way where a way was impossible. What's being described here is something that's mentioned in in other passages of Scripture where we, as those outside of the promise, were grafted into the family of God. This is actually a really beautiful picture. If you've ever seen a farmer or a gardener take a branch that has been cut off from a tree... That branch, for all intents and purposes, is dead. It has no life in and of itself. But then take that branch and graft it into a healthy tree or vine and give life to it. That's what happened to us. That is where we are now in Christ. Before Jesus, as non-Jews, we were outside of the covenant of Abraham. But God sends a man in the lineage of Abraham, a son of Adam, a son of King David, to make us alive in him. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22 says this For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Thank God. he didn't just leave us dead in his trespasses and sins but now in christ we have been made alive the covenant of abraham is being fulfilled in us as the church in that all the families of the earth are blessed through the saving work of jesus christ and can i tell you that is one of my favorite things about being the pastor here at crossbridge church to get to see all of the different nations all the different families of the world that god has brought together here under the banner of jesus christ but it's in its covenants with god and each other the church reveals the wisdom of god you see god makes covenants with his people to draw them to himself and to use them in accomplishing his will. Those covenants continue to go forward in the sense that we are now in what's called the covenant of grace, a covenant in which the grace of God has been extended to us through Jesus Christ. That's why we would say that it's appropriate to call the relationship that we have with each other in the church a covenantal relationship pattern after the covenant that God has made with his people. Now, God's people make covenants with each other in the local church. But we've been brought together into the covenant blessings of God for a purpose. Look at chapter 3, verse 10. Chapter 3, verse 10 starts with this phrase, so that. In Greek, this is what's called a hina clause. It's a purpose clause it indicates what is about to follow is the purpose of what was stated before he says so that through the church see as, as God has called us into covenant relationship with himself he has also called us into covenant relationship with each other and isn't this what we saw in Acts 2 that the church? did life together, were committed to each other in such a way that made them stand out so radically different than the world around them. But this passage tells us that one of the purposes of God in bringing the church together was that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. I don't know if you've ever paused to consider this before. I'm sure you've read this passage. But what is happening in the church is that God is actually revealing Himself and His wisdom through us. Now, remember, the church has two expressions, the the scattered church and the gathered church. And in both of those places, the church should always be making the wisdom of God known this passage concludes with something that i still struggle to get my mind around that god is actually using the church to make his wisdom known to some specific places that we make known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places now now think about this for a moment what are these authorities in heavenly places what are these rulers in heavenly places and this is not the first time that Paul has used this particular language in Ephesians he's already used it in chapter 1 verses 3 and 21 and chapter 6 verse 12 sometimes it references evil forces sometimes it references heavenly forces let me suggest to you that what he is referencing here is angels in heaven, those who minister to God and with God. Why would I say that? In First Peter chapter 1, verse 12, talking about the prophets, it says, It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And how does that phrase end? things into which angels longed to look. And again, this is one of those phrases in which I have a difficult time getting my mind around. But what this is telling us is that this wisdom of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the Gentiles being grafted into the church was wisdom that was so deeply hidden in the mind and heart of God that angels that dwell in heaven next to him didn't even know it. But he chose you and I as the church to reveal these incredible glories to them and to the lost and dying world. I mentioned it already, but let's go back and review. What is the wisdom of God made known according to this passage? What was the mystery? And let me suggest to you that it's twofold. Number one, Christ Christ. Colossians chapter 2 verses 2 and 3 tells us, it says this, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of the understanding of the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. (laughs) So again, try to get your brain around this one. Christ was part of the mystery in which more hidden mysteries were found. That mystery was revealed to us to then reveal the mysteries of Christ to the world around us. These Gentiles, you and I, that were now made fellow heirs of the promise, were brought into the promise to make the promise known. In other words, we were saved by Christ to make him known. We were outside the promise of God. Dead and destined for hell. But God, in his mercy and grace, didn't just sneak us out of hell, he brought us into his covenant family and made us his messengers to the world. We must make the gospel known wherever the church goes. Whether we scatter, whether we leave this place and go our separate directions, We do that by living and speaking the truth, and we make the gospel visible when we gather. As the living people of God, we make the gospel known by being the living among the dead. How do we go about doing this? How do we make it known? When we're the church scattered, remember, that's the universal church. How do we make the wisdom of God known to his world? Number one, holy living. We're all familiar with First Peter chapter one, verse sixteen, which says, Since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Or later in First Peter one chapter two, verses eleven and twelve, it says this Behold, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and do what? Glorify God on the day of visitation. Brothers and sisters, we should live our lives in such a way that is so holy that if someone even attempts to bring an accusation against us, it will not stand. There will be no evidence... And, and you understand holy living is what sets us apart from the rest of the world. And, and young people, I, I want to speak to you just for a moment. Because the world is going to tell you that it's cool to be disobedient to your parents, that it's cool to be drunk or to be a drug addict or be rebellious. And listen, if, if that is cool, then guess what? Following Christ isn't cool. And, and here's the thing, all of that stuff is labeled as being rebellious. But guess what? Everybody else is doing that. The world is doing all of these things are the opposite of God. Everybody's already doing all those things that the world is trying to convince you to do. But the one thing that we must do, if, if you are a young person and you are a believer in Jesus Christ, the thing that will separate you from everyone else that you know is a life holy, dedicated to God. And this day and age, you will stand out heads and shoulders above everyone else. But this is true for us as well. As, as adults, holy living seems like something that no one is doing. It is the way in which we can make the light of Christ shine brighter. We can be the light in this dark and dying world. But holy living To share the wisdom of God with the world around us is just the first step. We must also proclaim the gospel. That means speak the gospel. This is one of the most basic calls of Christ to his church. Mark 16, 15, or Matthew 28, 19, 20, the Great Commission. Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation, Or go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. It's something that we all know that we're supposed to do. And yet it seems like it's one of the hardest things to do, especially in this day and age where there are two things that you're never supposed to talk about. What are they, church? Two things you're never supposed to talk about. Thank you, John. You're never supposed to talk about those. But our Lord calls us as his church, you and I, to do the exact opposite of what the world says. We must talk about Jesus Christ. We are here to declare the mystery of Christ. But we don't glorify God just as the church scattered. We also glorify the church... As our Christ as the church gathered. Remember, this is the local church. This is when members of the universal church agree together in covenant relationship to help our fellow heirs live for their future inheritance by committing together in covenant relationship, and this is big, to make the gospel visible. Let me say that to you again. When we gather, we help our fellow heirs live for their future inheritance by committing together in covenant relationship to make the gospel visible have you ever considered that that when you take time out of a Sunday morning to come and gather with fellow heirs of Jesus Christ that that this building us being here together actually makes the gospel visible that, that there is a testimony that is being given to the larger community, that there is something going on over there that is different than what I know. And especially when we observe the Lord's Supper and have baptism. You see, as the church gathered, we must exalt Christ in our gathering. One of the, the great sorrows of the modern day Is that churches have forgotten that their goal is to glorify Christ in their gathering, and they have become means by which for people to be entertained. You see, if you're coming to a gathering, or the church is presenting a gathering in such a way that you are the focus of what is happening, who is being worshiped? It's not Christ, it's something else. But as I mentioned a moment ago, observing the Lord's Supper and baptism are two of the most clear ways in which the gospel is made visible when the local church gathers. But, but you also know, if you've been here at Crossbridge for any amount of time, even the way that we structure what we do when we come together is meant to exalt Christ. If you haven't considered it yet, think about the songs that we sing. Think about the amount of prayer that we have during the service. Think about the amount of Scripture reading that we have and the fact that this preaching moment is the focal moment because of the Word of God being center to everything that we do. Even the way that we lay out the order of our services, Christ must be the focus and Christ must be exalted. But one of the other ways in which we make the gospel visible as the church gathered, as the local church is to build relationships in which mutual care is common. One of the ways to think about this is through all the number of one another phrases that are used in the New Testament. Uh, It's two words in English, but it's actually only one word in Greek. It's used a hundred times in 94 different New Testament verses. 47 of those times give instructions to the church, and 60% of those instructions come from Paul. But here's the main idea of these one another phrases in which I would suggest to you that part of church life is building relationships in which mutual care is common. Think about what the one another phrase is, how the church is to interact with each other, what they emphasize. Unity, love, Humility. Those are the three main things that make up the one another commands in Scripture. There are a few that are just general commands, but by and large, the one another commands center on unity, love, and humility. I mentioned before uh, this document that our church calls our, our church covenant. Much of these one another commands are condensed down into that document so that every church member can see and agree upon what our church is about when they become a member let me suggest to take, that you would take one of those home and, and read and look at what's listed there. Even if you are already a member here at Crossbridge, it's a good idea to be refreshed of what we've covenanted together uh, to do for each other. But there is one area that's often overlooked in mutual care in the church. That is the work of building relationships that are intentional with each other so that we can know and care for each other. Disciples are not made in a vacuum, disciples are made in life lived together under the unity of Jesus Christ. This takes us all the way back to our opening illustration. When it comes to ministering to each other and and taking the steps to build relationships with each other, it often seems that everyone is waiting on someone else when it's something that anyone can do. So here's what I want to encourage you today. That today you would maybe even invite someone out to lunch after service or or get to know them and their family. Call or send a text to someone that you haven't talked to from church in a while. Take some basic steps that anyone can do so that together we can do only what we as the church can do, which is make the gospel visible. But then the the last point for us today is similar to the second. Let me encourage you to work as co-laborers in the work of the ministry. Let me suggest to you that this comes in essentially three forms. Strive together with others in prayer. If you've never made our Wednesday night prayer meeting, let me admonish you this morning that, that that's something that you need to do. That, that's actually one of my favorite times during the week, to hear other saints pray. And especially if, if you have children, they're, in a sense, being catechized at a separate time while we're praying together. It's a beautiful opportunity for your whole family to grow but if you've not made this a priority in your week, let me encourage you to start doing that this week. What a wonderful blessing it is to strive with others in prayer. The second way that I think you can be co-laborers in the work of the ministry is to be on the lookout for opportunities to serve in the church. If you desire to work in the church, but you're waiting for someone to approach you, let me encourage you to take the first step. And even if we don't have A ministry that fits your gifting maybe we can develop one together but here's the third and and maybe most important of what it actually looks like to work as co-laborers in the church together we have to work to protect the doctrine and the unity of the church what does that mean that means that you must know the Bible And encourage others in the church to live it with you protecting the doctrine and the unity of the church means you knowing the Bible and encouraging others in the church to live it with you this means at times we're going to have to call sin sin we're going to have to help our brothers and sisters be restored in Christ But all of this works together under the covenants of God in which we work together in covenant relationship to make his glory known. It's what we're called to do. And although at times dealing with people and relationships can be difficult, let me suggest to you that because of the glories of Christ, it is 100% worth it. Being obedient to the word of God is 100% worth it. Just a few questions of application and then we'll close. I would be remiss if I didn't ask those of you who are present if you are actually alive in Christ. You see, if you are here today and you have not repented of your sins and received the saving grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, you are still dead in your trespasses and sins. But Christ offers you the free gift of salvation today that you can be brought from death into life. If you cry out to him, we're going to have a moment of prayer in just a few moments. If you cry out to him during that time or any time and ask him to forgive you and to save you from your sins and become Lord of your life, you will be saved. But friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, we must remember you are alive. You have been made alive in Jesus Christ. So let's live like those who are alive. Not only have we been made alive in Christ, we've been given an eternal inheritance. But we must ask ourselves this question, are you living for a temporary inheritance or an internal one? Does the course of your life indicate that you care more about the things of this world or more about the things of God? Are you spending your time and resources completely invested in this world with no consideration of the one that is to come? And last but certainly not least, let me ask you to consider how committed you are to the covenant people of God. You see, the the Scriptures know nothing of a Lone Ranger Christian. The Scriptures know nothing of a person who attempts to do church all on their own. The, The people of God are always in community with each other. But this takes commitment on our part. The weather's changing outside. It's going to get cooler. Some of us like that. Some of us don't. But one thing we can all agree upon is that my bed feels much better when it's cold outside than when it is hot. And maybe over the next couple months as things get busier into the holiday season, our commitment to the things of God, our commitment to the people of God will be tested Let me encourage you now to reinforce your commitment to the people of God now before time gets difficult later. You see, God designed us for relationship with him and relationship with each other. And this is a glorious and good thing. And I know that there are many of us in the past who have been hurt by people who claim to be members of the body of Christ. Maybe you've even been sinned against inside of the church walls. But let me just say to you, don't let one or two bad experiences encourage you to believe that church and the commitment of the covenant people of God has no place in your life. The God-ordained institution of local church is something that all of us need. And it is a joy to get to do life together. I am thankful for each one of you. There are great joys and great sorrows that we have walked through together that have blessed my life in ways that I could have never imagined. But even more than that, being obedient to the Word of God, to bring glory to God, is worth it all. So I want to invite you at this time to to stand with me. We're going to close in prayer and then sing a song and observe the Lord's Supper together. I thought it would be a great way to bring this conclusion to this sermon series with us doing one of the things in which the gospel is made visible. That as we take the bread and the juice, we're reminded of what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord, we are so thankful of what you have done for us, but even more than that, we're thankful for who you are. If you in your character were not abounding in mercy, if you were not gracious and loving, your wrath would have overtaken us all. We would still be dead in our trespasses and sins, but instead, you've made us alive in Christ. Lord, help us to keep this at the forefront of our minds, even as this gathering comes to a close and we become the church scattered as we head to our homes and, and wherever we're going to head today and the rest of this week. Help us to keep you at the very forefront of our minds, the mission that you've given us to make this mystery known. Lord, as we prepare to observe the Lord's Supper, we pray that you would help us to have clear hearts and minds, that you would search our hearts to see if there's any wicked way in us. And that today, Lord, if there is anyone who is under the sound of my voice that does not know you as Savior and Lord, that you would draw them to yourself, that you would save them. Lord, Whatever your will is, whatever you have for us in the coming days and weeks and months and years, we know it is for our good. And so we will praise you in whatever you choose to do. Bless us even now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us. Please feel free to share this message, but remember, don't charge for it or change it. The Lord's message should be free and for everyone.